Okay, so on this episode of Dick Dick Dick, we have a very, very special guest. Um, <laughs> it's a first for us. <laughs> um, it's definitely um, new uncharted territories for us as a platform, as a podcast. Um, and so on this episode, we'll be talking about radical and radical change and what that means and especially what that looks like um, in politics. So if we can have our guest introduce himself. Oh, hello, hello. I don't know how special I am, but uh, my name is Anthony Clark. Uh, you know, I'm humbled. It's a pleasure to be on. Thank you for having me. Uh, just real quickly, you know, I'm a public education high school teacher, uh, disabled military veteran. You know, I'm a founder and director of my own nonprofit, uh, former co-owner of a small business employing at-risk youth. And I'm currently running for Congress in Illinois 7th Congressional District, which spans uh, the Chicagoland area and uh, west and south sides of Chicago. Thank you for being on. No, no, thank you. Again, I truly appreciate it. Anytime. Definitely yeah. have to support independent uh, black media. For sure. Um, so my introduction to you, um, not only is it through like our mutual friends, but I also saw you on America to Me. Um, and so um, obviously you've had an extensive past experiences in education and teaching. Um, and so one thing that really struck me about one one clip that you said in, in the scene was that you have to do more. Um, and so I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about your upbringing um, and the, the experiences, the world that shaped you, um, what were some like the sights and smells and just kind of like paint the picture for us. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, shout out all everything to my, my mother and father, Ron and Blanche Clark. Uh, shout out to them. Been together for over 40 years. Uh, but I was born on the south side of Chicago, Morgan Park community. Uh, and I mean, like many of us, you know, I didn't realize it at the time, but I was born into poverty. Uh, but of course, you know, everybody you're surrounded by is poor as well. So you don't really know a difference. Uh, and you have family. Uh, back then, it wasn't that long ago, but it was long ago enough where the block helped raise you too. You know, like we had the candy lady down the street. She would snitch on me. Like she would tell. She saw me doing something wrong. Uh, you have so many different kids that would just be on the block uh, in that area kicking it. Um, you know, my grandmothers helped raise me. My great-grandmother helped raise me while my mother and father would be at work. And so early on, you know, from about the age of zero, you know, nine months, of course, uh, you're born at nine months, but you come out at the age of zero to about five or six, I grew up in that environment predominantly. Like, I didn't know anything else. You know, all I knew was black folk. All I knew was at what I now call poverty, but mm -hmm. of course I didn't feel poor, mm -hmm. you know, because we had a lot of support. Uh, but what essentially happened was I have an older half brother. You know, I'm 37. My older half brother is uh, like 55, and you know, growing up in that environment, I believe particularly, you know, again we have issues with black men, black women. Uh, you know, we know the issues with black trans women in our communities. You know, black members of the LGBTQIA plus community. Uh, but I can only speak to being a black male. You know, specifically and directly as you age you begin to be seen further and further as a threat. Mm -hmm. And I think my parents had that in their mind uh, because my older brother ended up becoming incarcerated, you know, entered into the prison industrial complex. And, uh, you know, recidivism rates are extremely high because our, our prison systems are not focused on rehabilitation. Uh, they're focused on profit. Uh, so, again, I think them seeing that, you know, seeing the increasing levels of violence that were occurring, uh, you know, seeing how poverty was impacting uh, members of our family, whether it be mentally or, or, or physically, um, regardless of just overall health, uh, they scraped together their money and decided to move, you know, away from the south side. They wanted to find a better location for me to raise me in, in, in hopes of, you know, 
uh, providing me access to greater opportunity. And it's kind of like, I don't know who's seen the movie Coming to America. It's yeah. like one of the funniest <laughs> comedies of all time. But like in that scene where, uh, you know, Prince and, and, and Simi were like, where should we go? And they mm -hmm. like spent the globe. And they go, Queens. We'll go to Queens. Like my parents were just searching. Like yeah. where? Where to? And they selected Oak Park, Illinois. Um, you know, because I had an aunt, you know, that was doing some work in Oak Park, so they knew about it. You know, it was predominantly white community, still is a predominantly white community, uh, but everything was different, you know. So when they scraped together their money, moved me there, uh, my grandma came along as well to, you know, one of my grandmothers to help continue to raise me while my parents worked. Uh, it was that interesting experience that existed to where you could literally cross the street, and this is still true to this day, and everything changes. Uh, and that's when everything changed for me. Even at that young of age, I didn't necessarily know how to articulate it, you know, how to truly communicate what I experienced. But I went from literally like a Wakanda <laughs> where everybody's black and I didn't know I was poor. I thought everything was great. Everyone knew each other. Everyone spoke to each other. Everyone raised you. Everyone could whoop you. Uh, shout out to those parents. I'm not <laughs> saying whoop your kids. I'm just saying, but back then I did get that belt. Um, to a community that was predominantly white, uh, to where I didn't see anyone that looked like me or looked like people I knew, uh, to when you crossed into the Old Park community, like it just, it was just a different feel. Uh, like I don't know how many people like watch movies, but I think they call it like cinematography, to how you could like look at certain movies and understand which era that movie was filmed in, just because of the graininess or how the, you know, how the film looks. Mm -hmm. And that's how I literally kind of, and still to this day, literally describe communities. Like, it's different cinematography mm -hmm. depending upon where you are and where you live. Uh, so, yeah, moving there, that was a cultural shock for me. And I found out early on and very quickly uh, that I didn't necessarily belong and was accepted like I was, you know, in Morgan Park. I'll never forget I was in uh, kindergarten just playing, you know, just trying to have fun. And this is one of my few memories from that time. Uh, to where a young girl that I was playing with, uh, she had come to school, you know, an another day, like a day later after we were playing, and told me she could no longer play with me. And I asked her why. She said because her father had seen who I was. And because I was black, like, she couldn't be my friend. And, again, you're six. Like, who's thinking about race? Mm -hmm. Who, you know, so how many kids out here in this world have privilege not to have to think about that, you know, mm -hmm. for various reasons? or just live in hyper-localized places like Morgan Park, you know, to where race is an issue, but you don't know that at that age. So, I mean, that just threw my whole world in a loop. I'm like, what? I'm what? You know, like, what's going on? So I remember going home, my mother's crying, my father's upset, and that essentially began the journey. Uh, you know, I can only speak for myself and make I statements, but I think that happens for so many where we don't have the privilege or the protection to simply be kids. Like, you have to be a kid and right. something. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to be a kid and aware. You have to be a kid and remember to stay safe when you leave the house. You have to be a kid and remember to be polite because you learn about Emmett Till and other individuals throughout our history who were murdered simply for being mm -hmm. kids. Mm -hmm. uh, so <laughs> that adds, you know, extra burden and pressure. Uh, so that was the dynamic that existed. You know, my parents initially put me in a private school. Uh, you know, there are some subsidies and, so, you know, some benefits and grants that allowed them to place me there. But that didn't last long. Uh, you know, I ended up getting kicked out for fighting because, you know, I was being teased. I was like one of the few black kids there. Uh, and what was so funny about it, I actually, you know, we had a lot of fights. 
but they kicked me out not for me defending myself but one of the main bullies was like picking on a jewish kid and i just ended up like punching a bully in the face and they're like all right it's time for you to go uh, but throughout the whole process, you know, got kicked out of private school, you know, entered into public school, you know, which was a little bit better because it was more diverse. And I think you had a lot more children who, similar to me, parents were moving from other communities because in a black community and in, in brown communities and oftentimes working class poor communities, we don't have generational capital. So you have the dynamic that exists in communities like Oak Park or River Forest or wherever you want to identify to where you literally have families and family names that have been in that community for like hundreds of years. Like they live in the same house, that's capital, you know, that they pass down through the generations. They have life insurance policies. So when great grandma Annie died, you know, she left money to the family and they've invested it. And do you have families like ourselves who are like renting, like, you know, how I'm asking as a kid, like, how does Santa Claus come if we don't have a chimney? You know what I'm saying? Like, what's going on? But so it's that dynamic. And you just try to find a sense of self within that. And then, of course, you still have that dynamic of going back to the south side to visit the rest of your family that's still there. You know, they didn't make it out. Some of them don't want to make it out. You know, that's their home. And then you go to the west side to visit other family. So you're constantly changing cinematography you know you're constantly traveling across those uh those barriers to opportunity you know those opportunity streets uh so yeah just again just trying to figure it out you know and always being aware of it but not necessarily still as a teenager knowing how to fully articulate it or what to do about it but that's why you know I go back to my mother and father because what I did not learn within the school systems uh, I learned at home you know in regard to uh, the Black Panther Party primarily, you know, because that's, you know, if anybody follows, you know, our current campaign, I'm sure we'll talk about that later. But like I'm heavily influenced by the Panthers, uh, particularly Chairman Fred Hampton, uh, you know, learning about the civil rights movement, learning about the real Martin Luther King, not the whitewashed mm -hmm. and colonized version of Martin Luther King that's presented today to where everybody pretends like they loved him and love to quote him. Uh, because when he was alive, he was one of the most hated individuals in America. Uh, you know, Malcolm X, uh, you know, Marcus Garvey, Pan-Africanism, Angela Davis, Asada Shakur, you know, Huey P. Newton, you know, just across the board, uh, Nelson Mandela, Winnie Mandela, you know, just being exposed uh, to these revolutionaries and these revolutionary ideologies and principles. And then you go into a school setting and they're telling me that essentially they're presenting like curriculum from Gone with the Wind, like to where, you know, you got Mammy and the slaves were happy on the plantation and, you know, it wasn't violent. Everybody got along again. But then I go home and, you know, I get that real, you know, like this was genocide. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, this country is essentially built on the genocide of natives, the theft of their land, the enslavement of Africans and African descendants, chattel slavery, and the genocide of Africans and African descendants. So this country is built upon hate. Mm -hmm. uh, so just imagine that, you know, learning that at home. And then having to come to school and you have an expert in the front of the class presenting BS to you. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Because yeah, I'm going to listen sure. to my daddy before I listen to you, mm -hmm. you know, in regard to the teacher. You know, and one of the, you know, outside of Fred Hampton, how I started to actually, you know, try to actively get involved was because of Muhammad Ali. Uh, you know, just his life story in a sense of, and that's why I say you always have to do more. Because if we want to truly take stands and address the systemic issues that by design exist in a capitalistic society, it's not enough, like in today's age, because of course we have technology, I didn't have Facebook as a team, but it's not enough to make a post on Facebook. 
you know, it's not enough to, you know, create a poster and you go have a poster. Who who created the most woke poster? Or it's not enough to even, you know, just show up sometimes. Like, you have to really look in the mirror and ask yourself, what are you willing to risk and sacrifice for change and what you believe in? And Muhammad Ali literally risked it all. Like, he lost everything uh, when he refused to go fight in a white man's war. Uh, you know, we know the military-industrial complex exists. Uh, you know, wars are fought for profit, not for humanity. Throughout history, greed and profit have always been about warfare. Um, so, I mean, that just, and, and the saying of his, uh, I actually have it tatted on me, is, you know, service to others is the rent you pay for room here on this earth. And I'm like, man, this this dude was really paying rent. You know, these other people, like Angela, like Fred, like Rosa, they were paying rent. What the hell am I doing? Yeah. You know, so I, I know the information. So I'm not ignorant. It's one thing to be ignorant and not know. But once you know, once you know you're being lied to, once you know oppression is by design, what are you going to do about it? And again, I'm not where I need to be. I still need to do more. But that began the journey in the sense of, you know, becoming a public high school teacher and trying to do more within the educational system, which is broken. School to prison pipeline exists, uh, you know, just like in slavery times. Uh, black and black bodies are definitely commodified. You know, brown bodies are commodified. Poor bodies are commodified. Uh, so, you know, school to prison pipeline essentially still pushes, you know, our predominantly black men into the penal institutions. Uh, still over hypersexualizes our black women. You know, our brown men, our brown women. Uh, you know, and they. Uh, so it's just a huge issue that exists. So from that, I'm like, well, I'm a teacher now, but I'm still not doing enough because the system is broken. So now. Let me do something to work outside of the system while I'm simultaneously working inside the system because I cannot continue to see our children lose their lives, like literally and, you know, and metaphorically. So I started a nonprofit, you know, in 2016, Suburban Unity Alliance, our website, suburbanunity.org. And we've done every like literally all the issues are interconnected. Uh, so we try to respond with interconnected solutions. So, I mean, <laughs> We pay for college. We pay for rent. We pay for mortgages. Uh, we've represented families against, uh, you know, the, these predatory banks, these predatory uh, management property management companies. Uh, we've, you know, pushed and collaborated on helping Paso. You know, shout out to them. Pass a welcoming village ordinance in Oak Park and other surrounding communities. Uh, we got Columbus Day eliminated and Indigenous Peoples Day recognized. Uh, you know, so. We help, you know, survivors of sex trafficking. Like, we've literally done it all. Help small businesses that were under attack. Um, we raised, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And yet and still, I found myself saying, well, this is not enough. Mm. Because if you recognize, once again, if you're not ignorant to the fact that s oppression is systemic. And what nonprofits essentially do is we put Band-Aids over open wounds. Like, we're not changing the issue like we're not addressing the root cause we're responding to it uh so essentially what i found myself doing and you know the example that i utilize is every week i'm like feeding the homeless every week i'm like clothing helping clothe the homeless you know we, we have coalitions that do this and yes that's admirable that's great you know oh wow we pat ourselves on the back you know but we're doing it for the same homeless individuals every week so what have we changed for them we haven't helped empower them we just essentially letting them hopefully survive. Um, so in order to make a difference, we don't need to put our energy in feeding the homeless. We need to end homelessness. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so that's what led me to, again, wanting to do more, you know, from teaching to a nonprofit to 
the small business I started to empower individuals. Like, so now they own it. Like, I stepped away. I used to own the business, but now the former employees own it now. That wasn't enough. So that's what led me to actually be nominated to run for office by the community because uh, I received, I don't believe in individual accolades, but I was awarded Village of the Year Award in 2017 in Oak Park. Um, you know, and that was a community award. Uh, but from that, I was nominated to run for Congress. And sitting back, you know, just breaking down everything I've been through, my experiences of, you know, growing up, I was shot in 2007. We didn't even talk about that, but, you know, it's a lot. Um, you know, I've been homeless myself, you know, leaving, thinking I'm grown, you know, trying to get away from my parents, uh, you know, serving in the military, which I call the poverty draft, just after graduating high school and coming back, teaching in alternative schools in the city, uh, charter schools in the city. You know, I was on strike in 2012 with CTU at Kenwood Academy High School, like all these different experiences, the experience running a nonprofit, the experience running a small business, co-running a small business. It just led me to understand like if we really want to make change like we have to address policy so i know that was like extremely long-winded <laughs> uh but that's essentially what has always led me to have to do more like mm. this is not enough you can never rest mm -hmm. if you truly want to change like never like i feel like i'm going to die whenever that may be still trying to do more mm -hmm. because until we're all equal until we eliminate oppression until access to opportunity is not determined upon determined by your race or gender or sexual orientation like there's still work to do mm. so yeah um thank you for that that was that was a lot but i think like some major takeaways for me is sacrifice mm. you know your parents sacrificing comfort in a community that they know, you know, leaving home essentially and going into this uncharted territory with no plan, with no map, with no nothing, but knowing that they want it better for you um, and ultimately better for like future generations in their family and obviously like other other families, other communities. Um, I think that that's like crucial and is very evident in the work that you do and in the way that you do your work i think also just the fact of community and like even when you you know when you went to the school in oak park how you had to find that community right like it wasn't there but you all had to build that community and how how resilient um black folks and just you know folks of color are and, and people in general are um yeah there's just there's just so many lessons and like how how important and how radical like those those two in itself are right like we um I, I think it's easy to idolize a lot of like a lot of our figures like for sure they've done amazing things but if you take a look at the root of what they're doing that community-based aspect that those sacrifices that love you know like those things are are what um that that's that's what continues it that's that's what um is the only way for us to survive, right? In order for us to create access, in order for us to identify the people who need what they need the most, right? You have to have that like unwavering, like I'm gonna stand in my truth, I'm gonna love you, I'm gonna do what I need to do for you so that we can all get to where we need to get. Definitely, definitely, and it's deep. And you know, while you were sharing out, you know, something I thought about, you know, in regards to being radical and making sacrifice, like we're human, like we all, you know, desire, compassion, and love for the most part, right? We all desire, you know, relationships and building relationships. But if you think about it, like, through history, the true radicals, like the true individuals that were pushing against the system for systemic change, 
they're most likely no longer here. One, they were assassinated uh, or they have a history of incarceration or attempted incarceration. If you look at Angela Davis uh, and they were hated. And that's what's so deep about this work in a sense that for me, and I think a lot of people of color, you know, when you're in spaces like this, organizing spaces, it's easy for us uh, to fall in that that feeling of, and again, I'm not speaking for everyone in a sense, but that feeling of, oh, I'm loved, like I'm, you know, I'm I'm celebrated. And for me, just if the oppressors are celebrating you, mm-hmm. that may be a problem. Mm-hmm. Like if you're making money from the oppressors and they're celebrating you, you may want to reevaluate. Uh, because that's the cycle. Like they prop you up, they fetishize you as long as they could use you, mm-hmm. you know, but the minute they feel you're a threat, the minute they feel you're trying to upend a system that benefits them and their privilege, <laughs> they tear you down, you know? So, and that's for me, you know, what I'm still unpacking and dealing with because I went from like, you know, Village of the Year in 2017 because I was doing, you know, nonprofit work and people didn't really know who I was, like me personally. Mm-hmm. They just knew who they saw in the community, you know, to being worshipped and like, I'm just a person. But yeah. you know how that happens. Yeah. Like, oh, Anthony Clark. We know Anthony and he's a friend and I get to check, a, you know, check off a box. Uh, but when you really start rocking the boat and you really start getting that hate, you know, I'm learning more and evolving and embracing that, you know, uh, being the bad person mm. to others mm-hmm. because I feel that's when you really know you're rocking the boat. That's when you really know you're like hitting a button and like trying to change things. So I don't, that's, I don't want to leave the legacy of I was loved while I was here. If that makes, that's weird to say, yeah. but if that makes sense, like or, I don't want to be loved. Well, yeah, I don't definitely a, don't never want to yeah. be worshiped and I definitely don't want to ever be loved by the oppressors. Yeah. Uh, so my legacy is when I leave this earth is however minuscule it may be, whoever remembers my name, they're going to be like, man, the oppressors hated his ass. And, uh, you know, I think that's, <laughs> that means I was actually trying to help, you know, within coalitions to change things. Yeah, for sure. I have a quote that I say to myself often is that the edge is more comforting than the illusion of security. That's dope. Right. So like you always got to try, you always got to push and you, what is success success looks different for every person but that the fact that you are pushing yourself to that edge is like the most important thing Definitely. um i think that one thing that i've seen throughout your campaign and um throughout the things that you've used you've been speaking about is transparency and mm-hmm. i think that that is really um i think that's so crucial like especially in this time we have like so much access to information but like what do we really know you know sometimes it's like we're getting all these things but what is it really exposing what is it really sharing to us how is it really changing us and i think for you um saying like laying out policy like even just name dropping these these words that you know people may have heard growing up on the news or whatever but they never fully understood or maybe they understand in a practical standpoint but they don't understand theoretically um and so can you just talk about that mm-hmm. that um inclusion into your your campaign strategy or right. just i mean definitely person? definitely i mean in regards to transparency i just think that's that's everything yeah uh because i think the goal is to not only place yourself in leadership spaces but you also want to help nurture and help train future leaders 
Um, and I don't think we have that right now with particularly within our political realms, like these individuals get into spaces, get into office and literally hold on to them for decades and decades and decades while the communities continue to struggle. Uh, so I never want to present myself or, you know, the role that our team plays in this movement as something we are not. I am a flawed individual. Mm. I attend therapy sessions. You know, I have PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. So I'm open about that mm -hmm. because I think hopefully many of us identify and recognize how the stigma of mental health negatively impacts the black community, uh, the brown community and impoverished communities. So I want to be as open as possible with my walk. Not preach to people, but just be open. Yeah. You know, I attend therapy. This is how it's benefited me. Uh, I'm a medical cannabis card holder. Uh, so I'm extremely open about my cannabis usage. And again, hopefully many of us know and make the connections of how the racist war on drugs has disproportionately impacted predominantly black, brown and impoverished communities. Uh, so I, I speak on that and how, you know, I have PTSD and many of the symptoms that I've experienced throughout my life and the manifestations. I notice it in a lot of our youth who have never been in the military, who have never been in war, but because they live in violence, pervasive everyday gun violence which we have to speak truth to power and say includes police violence, has to include it, white supremacy, domestic terrorism, uh, domestic violence within the home. Uh, so all this plays a role, and many of our children are dealing with it and self-medicating and not realizing it. And then we look at our communities and what are closed, our mental health facilities, we don't have them. Our hospitals are closing down. CTU, shout out to them, Chicago Teachers Union, literally had to go on strike this past year to demand at least one social worker and nurse in every school. How does a school not have one social worker, at least one, and one nurse? So all these things are connected. So for me, it's just being as honest as possible, as transparent as possible, and then through sharing my truths, try to connect it to policy issues and issues that exist. Uh, you know, I had asthma as a child, struggled with it when I was born in Morgan Park. I make that connection to how climate change is a huge issue yeah, and how disproportionately black and brown individuals, we only produce about 15 to 20 percent of pollution, but yet we're exposed to 40, 50, 60 percent of pollution. So how does the Green New Deal, why is that important to us? Because often you hear these like titles, these policy titles, but it's so big, it's so large on a national scale. Well, let's scale it down, take the macro to micro, and how does this impact somebody on the south side? Right. How does this impact somebody on the west side? What does it mean to us? Do we know that and understand that Flint, and shout out to everybody fighting in Flint, but they're not the only ones ingesting lead, poison water? Our pipes are extremely corroded. Our infrastructure is extremely old, and we're exposed to this. So making all those connections and then doubling it back to how, again, people of color are the ones who take the brunt of every inequity that exists in this country is by design. Uh, so, yeah. So just being honest and letting people know you don't have to be born into privilege. You don't have to be born into wealth. You didn't have to be tapped at an early age to be the next Obama or, or so on and so forth. Your experience is the struggle. You just have to be someone willing to fight for change. And we could be the ones on the front line making the policy. Uh, we could be the ones on the front line, you know, uh, educating the communities. Because the politicians aren't out here. Like, they don't come in these areas until it's time to get elected. 
you know they go to a black church say what they have to say probably pay the pastor sorry just speaking truth (laughs) they put their street signs on the ground and call it a day but what does it really mean to get somebody that's knocking on doors again talking about how our current health system you know the ACA and Medicare and Medicaid was you know Trump just came out with you know I hope people see this they just came out with that they're pulling money back that's going to impact poor individuals individuals of color primarily who receive services uh and the nuance of it why don't we have a lot of black doctors there's only like six percent nationally only two percent black male doctors why don't we have a lot of black teachers extremely low percentages two percent are black males we could go across the board black lawyers you know why don't we have a jury of our peers when we're in this criminal justice system and we have to walk into court and see nothing but white faces it's a huge issues that exist you know why don't we have home ownership Let's talk about redlining. Let's talk about Jim Crow. Let's talk about still redlining. It's not called it, but they still do it. Predatory lending practices with banking. Why don't credit scores allow us to count our cell phone bills that we pay and different things that will help primarily poor individuals and people of color improve their credit scores to obtain loans? Why, when we go into communities of color, do we only see liquor stores, churches, and you know check cashing uh, loan places? Because they want to keep us prayed up, broke, and drunk. You know, so that's just, it's a lot. So for me, it's just speak truth to power, speak your truth. uh, And hopefully through that truth, you make those connections to policies that are often so hard and large and scale them down to local issues because nothing changes at a national level until it starts changing locally. And speak to individuals that have been ignored, you know, for decades and decades and, and try to push and make that change. And we're not doing anything new. Like the things we're fighting for now, the Black Panthers were doing, you know, like breakfast programs, you know, breakfast and lunch for children. They were doing that health care, free health care for the community. They were doing that, Uh, you know, addressing systemic police violence. They were doing this. Uh, But so we stand on the shoulders of giants. Nothing's new here, but it's telling that in 2020 we still haven't achieved, you know, these goals. So. Yeah, for sure. Um, So you've already started to mention the things that you are working towards that you're fighting for. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you give us like a a brief list of like a synthesized version? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I won't because I know I talk a long time. It's a lot to talk about. But essentially, every issue is interconnected. Um, So, you know, I was shot in 2007. You know, my 11 years of teaching, I've lost 12 students to gun violence. And I think right now you have a lot of leadership that just said, oh, we need stricter gun laws. But this is class warfare. This is a class struggle. This is the oppressed versus the oppressors. Uh, so we have to address poverty because if we address poverty, everything else is going to be addressed. Gun violence, etc. cetera. Uh, so our four you know, main policy points uh, within this class struggle, of course, is Medicare for all. You know, just identifying and understanding how health care plays a huge role in our communities. Uh, the Green New Deal plays a huge role in our communities. Uh, housing as a human right through the homes guarantee plays a huge role in our communities. Uh, so that means, you know, no one should be without a home. We have federal jobs guarantee. You know, the government, essentially no one should be without a job. This is possible. We can do this, a livable wage. How many of us are working, have to work multiple jobs or are working and we're not making, I mean, we're not making enough to live. You know, minimum wage is not enough 
And even if you're making $15, that's not enough because it's not tied to inflation. So we need to make a livable wage. So those are like the main policy points that we're pushing and fighting for because they're interconnected and they address so many other things. Because if you're making more money, if you have a job, if you have a home, if you don't have medical debt, of course, we're also pushing for elimination of college and educational debt as well as public, you know, college and trade school for all. You're going to have less violence. You're going to have less struggle. You're going to have an economy that's going to be able to flourish and thrive because people are able to live and not struggle. Uh, so that's what we believe in. You know, we also have a reparations plan that we just debuted on our website. Uh, you know, we're one of the I don't know anyone else, honestly, but we're not afraid to go there. It's a live document. We tell the community if you have ideas, if you read it, you know, go to our website at voteanthonyclark.com. You'll see our reparations agenda, which specifically details how many of the current policies that we're fighting for ties into disproportionately empowering the black community as we've been disproportionately uh, disinvested in and power taken from us, as well as, you know, new policies. We mentioned earlier about the lead. Like we literally need to pay for nationally. We need to pull up every corroded pipe in our communities we need to remove all the corroded paint in our communities no one should be drinking lead infested water we need to give money to and pay individuals that have been impacted by uh pollution and find these companies that continue to pollute you know so that's one example of it we need to invest billions of dollars into hbcus historically black colleges and universities get them to the point to where they're on the same level as any university, as they should be. And we have thorough and healthy plans and transitions for individuals that want to be teachers to improve black teachers in our in our nation. Individuals that want to be lawyers to improve black lawyers in our nation. Individuals that want to be in doctors to improve black doctors in our nation. So, I mean, we could go on and on, literally. Uh, but, yeah, so those are some of the plans. Uh, but I challenge individuals, you know, to look within it. And we have some other bold plans as well, uh, you know, like decriminalization of sex work. Uh, we don't believe in meeting communities where they are. We believe that, again, even if it's not popular, even if people are, oh, you know, you have to understand, like, we need to bring communities to where they need to be. And you cannot be for, we believe that you cannot be for workers' rights, humans' rights, the rights of black women, the rights of trans women, the rights of LGBTQIA plus communities, uh, so on and so forth, unless you understand the nuance that leads many individuals within the sex work, no matter the level. Yeah. Uh, so we have to decriminalize sex work and things of that nature. So it's all spelled out on our website. Uh, you know, abolish ICE. We could go on, yeah. you know, but it's just important that we educate ourselves and understand how all the issues are interconnected. It's not good enough to just say, well, we're just fighting for this issue because it benefits us. If it doesn't benefit and address the class struggle, we're still going to be disproportionately negatively impacted. Well, thank you. Um, so this last question is becoming a reoccurring question on our podcast. But what does a fully realized world look like to you? <laughs> I mean, that's a huge, huge question, uh, because no one throughout the history of the world has ever realized or seen or witnessed or been able to describe a fully realized world. Uh, and for me, you know, again, hypothetically, you know, I don't I'm not nothing's wrong with competition. So I'm not sitting up here and saying that, you know, with these policies that we're pushing forward and everything that believe in. You know, everyone's going to be wealthy and everyone, you know, is going to get everything they want in life. But I believe a fully realized world is a world to where you're not born into poverty. 
to where statistics show if you're born into poverty, likely you're going to remain poor. You're not born into oppression to where statistics show if you're born into oppression, you're likely going to be oppressed your entire life. We need to, in a capitalistic society, we need to eliminate the oppressive isms uh, that exist that dictate the top and the bottom. And we need to empower the working class community, uh, the working class poor communities. So that's how I envision it to where we have a world and it's, ide it's idealistic. Well, I don't think we can ever truly get here, but we can become better to where your race, your gender, your sexual orientation, your beliefs, your ability level, you know, shout out to the disability community, uh, so on and so forth, does not automatically dictate your zip code, your area code, you know, the schools you're in, because we know how property taxes disproportionately impact yeah. schools. We got to address that issue. It doesn't dictate your life. You should be able to dictate your life. And I think that's a fully realized world to where a person is born, they feel like they're fully supported. They can be who they are, love who they want, do what they want to do in life. And then it's up to them, not anyone else, not the government, not someone who hates them because of who they are. It's up to them how far they want to go, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you so much. No, thank you. Um, is there anywhere that people can find you, connect with you? Definitely, definitely. So our campaign website is voteanthonyclark.com. That's Clark without an E, C-L-A-R-K. Uh, you know, our Twitter page, our Instagram page is Anthony V. Clark 20, uh, Facebook as well. So, you know, just check us out, add us, you know, roll with us. This is a movement. Uh, we're in class struggle. Uh, but if you dare to struggle, you dare to win. And we always like to end anything we do with, you know, all power to the people. Awesome. You all can follow us at Dig3X or you can follow me at Sierra, S-I-E-R-R-A with three underscores, J-A-Y.